Um, <laughs> I want to start by asking you two questions today. Um, they were questions that I felt like the Lord uh, asked me this morning as we were here and we were spending some time in prayer. And they're really a lead into a series that we're going to be doing uh, in the summer. But I felt impressed to ask them of all of us in the room today. And the first question is, is pretty simple. It's how many, how many of us, how many of you want to see revival in Huron? Um, I de I'll define it this way. You want to see people saved. You want to see people set free. You want to see people healed. You want to see people restored. Uh, you want to see that type of, of situation in Huron, South Dakota. And say, that's, that's me. I thought so too. I'm like, well, that's a no-brainer. I raised my hand. I'm like, Lord, of course I want to see that. Well, here's the second question. What am I doing about it? I mean, because it's easy for us to come here every Sunday and sit in this room and tell ourselves that we want to see revival in Huron, but what are we doing about it? How has it affected my prayer life? How has it affected my time in the Word? How has it affected uh, my relationships with other humans? How, how much more do I show honor? How much holiness am I pursuing? Uh, what is my entertainment? What is, well, how do I spend my time? How am I spending my money? I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and delude myself and, and say, I want to see revival in Huron, but I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, really? What are you doing about it? And like I said, that's a lead-in for, has nothing to do with today's message, but I hope it makes us think, and I hope it changes our lives. I hope that every day we wake up with that nagging question in the back of our mind, what am I doing about it? I mean, otherwise, we're just going to continue to do what we've always done and hope that we get a different result. How many of you have ever seen a revival where people are getting saved left and right and healed and delivered and restored and set free and the entire town is talking about it? Like They're like, man, you gotta, you've got to meet this Jesus. How many of you have lived in a community and you've seen that? The every single person in the town has wanted to hear the message. Because the Bible says there were cities where every person had heard or wanted to hear. No, none of us have. How many of want every person in Huron to do that? We do. But if we want to see something that we've never seen, we may have to do something we've never done. I don't think it's going to happen if we just show up on Sunday morning. I don't even think it'll happen if we show up more faithfully on Sunday morning. Something has got to change in the way that we live out our lives. And this summer, that's one of the things that we're gonna be talking about. But today, we're gonna talk about something different. We're gonna talk about baseball, because baseball season. Um, in your, in your uh, mailboxes today, you should have received one of these. And if you have that, I want you to pull that out. We're going to need that in a little bit. This is the time of year. Uh, every year we, we talk about um, the getting in the game ministry opportunities booklets, and we put these out. And every year at this time, we kind of restructure our body. We restructure our volunteers. And um, to those of you that have volunteered in different positions throughout the year, whatever that would be, uh, as a greeter, as a member of our worship team, as a, a teacher, uh, as an usher, as a what, whatever it is that you've done through this year, 
Um, we want to say thank you to you for what you do because we, we as a body cannot function without each person doing their part. And uh, I know that at times we sign up for things and we don't feel like doing it all the time. Um, you know, I signed up to be a pastor and I promise you every day I don't feel like doing that. Um, I don't even feel like it every Sunday. And so we, we do these things because we know that the Lord has called us to do it. We do it because this is what we've committed ourselves to. And we give you the opportunity to hear the Lord and commit for a year. Um, that way you don't feel like, you know, am I in this for life or longer? Um, that's not a bad thing, but it's at least an in and an out. And so every year at this time, we give us a, ourselves an opportunity to talk about it. And so today, we're going to talk about the church, and we're going to come back to this book uh, later on in the service, but we're going to talk first about the keys to the church. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at the honor key and how I believe honor is a very important part to seeing uh, God move in an area. It's an important key to the kingdom. Remember the open and closed chest and when we honor people, especially people that don't deserve it, we open the chest and God's glory, his presence can, can fill that place. But if we dishonor, we close the chest. And so keeping that in the theme and that in our minds, we're gonna talk about the keys to the church. And when we think about having keys, literally, physically keys to the church, not a metaphor now, but, but real keys to the church, um, it kind of gives you access to something that was closed. I mean, you may come here on a Tuesday uh, in the evening and the door will be locked. But if you have a key to the church, you can get in where you couldn't get in before. Um, if you don't have a key or you forgot your key, you may call someone uh, that lives close. Thank the Lord, this is no longer the parsonage because then that would mean that every time you forgot your key, <laughs> it'd be my job to come and let you in. And uh, as much as I would love to do that, not every day of my life. So um, these keys give us access. And when you have the keys to the church, a lot of times that in our minds is a, a symbol of authority, a symbol of maybe power, maybe control, uh, because if you have the keys to something, you have access to something, there's a reason that you have them. Uh, we give our deacons access. We give them keys. We, we give teachers keys, access, because they have a responsibility. They have a position that deems them that they need to have access to the building or access to a classroom. So we give them keys. Now, sometimes that power goes to our head earthly speaking, and uh, we have the keys to the church, and we think that that means, you know, that we have the keys to the church. Now, speaking metaphorically, sometimes people think they have the keys to the church because they're the biggest donors, right? And so they'll threaten the, the pastor or the leaders that if we don't do a certain thing, then they're going to take their money. <laughs> well, okay, because if what you're asking us to do contradicts the word of God, well, we'd rather have him on our side. So um, we would let you take your money wherever you wanted to go because we're going to be true to what the word says. And generally, anytime someone tries to hold you hostage in that type of situation, uh, that's not the Lord. The Lord doesn't do that to us. That's not how he's treated us. Even while we were his enemies, he loved us and died for us. So he doesn't give with strings attached. So neither should we. And so these, this idea of keys to the church can mean a whole lot of different things. And even the word church can mean a whole lot of different things. When you think of that word church, I don't know what comes to your mind, and it might depend on how you were raised, it might depend on your history, but church could mean a building. 
Church could be a location. Church could mean a, a Sunday service. Church could mean any service. It could be a, a program. It could be a denomination. And so I don't know what comes to your mind when we hear the word church. It could be a group of people or it could be just a part of a group of people. So church, what is it? And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about our church. We're gonna talk about the church. We're gonna talk about his church. Because Jesus is the first one that introduces it, Matthew chapter 16. When we talked about the honor key a few weeks ago, I told you we would come back to Matthew 16 because in this passage, Jesus says, I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom. Well, also in this passage, he introduces this idea of church. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 16, we're gonna start in verse number 13. It's not written on the screen, but that's where we're starting. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And so Father, Give us understanding as we study your word together. Make this applicable to each of our lives. Today I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, they're in the region of what is known as Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is the northernmost part of the nation of Israel. It's, if you were in the, the geographical studies we did on the nation of Israel in Sunday school, it's right at the foothills of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. It is a mountain, it's not a hill. But then there are these foothills that are the Caesarea Philippi. It's a very fertile region, a lot of rain there. But it was also, in Jesus' day, a place of pagan worship. It was a, especially uh, a place where they worshiped the god Pan. Pan was the god of nature. He was the god of uh, that type of power and authority. He, he didn't have a temple. You worshiped him in nature. And so specifically, they would cut into rock formations these altars or symbols where you would worship the god Pan. And Caesarea Philippi not only worshiped the god Pan in this area with big rock cutout formations, but they worshiped all kinds of other gods. This was a very demonic, false religion type of area. And so Jesus comes here and he's with his disciples and he poses a very important question to them right here. Now, we don't know if they're on a retreat. I mean, if you're going on a retreat or you're just trying to get away from people, this is the place to go, especially if you want to get away from religious people because there aren't going to be a whole lot of Jews or Jesus followers in this region. So maybe that's why they're there. Some scholars think so. Some believe that they're there on purpose and really everything Jesus did was on purpose. So I can't believe that he's just by accident in this area. Maybe he's there because he's about to assert himself, or actually Peter is, actually the Lord is, as 
over all other gods. And so maybe he's, he's in this region strategically. Maybe he's in this region because he's about to use a play on words calling Peter, whose name means rock, and talking about building his church on the rock. And maybe this bedrock area where these false gods are built into the mountain, if you will, maybe that's why he's there. We don't know why he's there, but we know this. Jesus picks this moment to ask his disciples a question. And it's an important question. And it's a question that we still ask today and needs to be asked today is, who's Jesus? Who do people say that he is? I mean, that's the question that uh, CNN asks. That's the question that all over the place people are saying, who is this Jesus? Hold on one second here. I just need, my screen keeps going crazy on me because I didn't lock it. So I'm going to lock it because I, I'm not going to be able to keep going like this with my head when my screen goes sideways. So there, thanks for being patient. Screen locked, we're good to go. So Jesus is asking his disciples, much like Larry King would say, who is this Jesus? Who's this Jesus? CNN would do a special on it. A&E would do a special on it. The History Channel would do a special on it. Who do people say Jesus is? Now, can I tell you, Jesus is not looking for information. He really doesn't care who people say he is. He doesn't really uh, wanna know who people say that he is. In fact, he tells us in the scripture, in John chapter two and in John chapter five, he doesn't really need to know about uh, what people think. He doesn't really care about what the testimony of people is because he takes the testimony of his father. Okay, he knows what's in the heart of man and so he doesn't look for praise for man. So what I believe Jesus is doing is he's trying to lead the disciples into a teaching moment, if you will. And he doesn't wanna just tell them who he is. Hey, guys, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. Because when you get information in that type of way, it doesn't mean as much as when it's revealed to you. Does that make sense? If I tell you something to be true, that's gonna mean less to you than if you experience something in such a way that you find out it's true. That's what Jesus is leading them on this journey. He's asking them, who do people say that I am? So they answer, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead, which to me is just so odd because Jesus and John, I mean, he was baptized by John. So how could he be John raised from the dead? But it just shows you the fallacy of the human mind. Some people think he's, John raised from the dead. Some think he's Elijah. Why is that important? Because the Jews at many of their feasts would leave an empty seat at the table. Why would they leave an empty seat? The seat was for Elijah. So when their kids would say, why is there an extra seat at the table tonight? That seat is for Elijah. Why? Because they lived with the anticipation that Elijah was going to come back because he never died. And before he, the Messiah comes, Elijah's gonna come. So we set a place at the table saying, we want Elijah because we want the Messiah. I mean, that's, that's faith right there. You know, I think of Mr. Bridges on facing the giants. You know, it's one thing to pray for rain, it's another to prepare the soil for the rain. It's, another, it's one thing to say, yeah, we would like the Messiah to come, it's another to leave a place at your table so that Elijah comes so the Messiah can come. Hopefully that, you caught that. Some people believe he, he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, we're not told in scripture how Jeremiah died and so some of the legend is that Jeremiah didn't die like Elijah, he was just taken and he never experienced death. And so maybe he's Jeremiah, maybe he's just one of the other prophets. I mean, today we're still in this same divide about who this Jesus is. Islam teaches that Jesus was a historical person. 
He just wasn't the son of God. He wasn't God. But Jesus existed. The Mormons teach Jesus existed. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. Many people believe the historical evidence Jesus existed, but it's not so important what everybody else thinks about Jesus. Jesus cuts to the point. Who do you say that I am? See, I don't care what Islam teaches. I don't care what the rest of America thinks about who Jesus is. What matters is who do I say that he is? And not just who do I claim to say that he is, but who does my life portray that he is? And so Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives us the statement, you are the Christ, the Messiah. That's the same word in the Greek language. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. In other words, you're the anointed one. You're the deliverer. You're the one that the prophecies from the beginning have told are gonna come and set Israel free. That's who you are. You're the son of the living God. They're surrounded by all of these false gods and Peter makes this declaration, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you know what, Peter? You're blessed because that wasn't revealed to you by any person. My father revealed that to you. I think of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. No one speaking by the spirit of God will curse Jesus and no one says he's Lord except by the spirit. You are in this room today for no other reason other than the revelation given to you by God. You're not special above anyone else on the world. You are, you were revealed Jesus. You didn't do it by your own intellect. You didn't do it by your own power. You didn't do it because you're smart enough or because you're some special human being. You did it because he revealed himself to you. And so we don't dare look down on the rest of the world that rejects him because we're no better. We've just received the revelation. We pray that they come to the same revelation as well. Who does Jesus say that he is? So then Jesus makes this amazing statement and he institutes the church or or does he he says you're peter you're the rock i mean peter's name literally meant little stone it didn't mean rock it meant little stone and on this rock the greek word for peter would be petros little stone on this rock jesus says petra big rock, bedrock, I will build my church. Some people have taught over the years that Peter is the first pope, Peter is the first, or the the foundation of the church, if you will, because of this statement that Jesus made. That doesn't make sense if you compare it with the rest of scripture. Jesus isn't saying, I'm gonna build my church on you, Peter. He's saying, I'm gonna build it on the statement that you have just made. The declaration that I am the Christ, the son of the God, that's the bedrock of the church and Jesus says on this rock I will build my church that's the first time that word is used in the scripture and there's only one other time it's used in the gospels and that's found in Matthew chapter 18 verse 17 if the person when Jesus is talking about how to deal with a brother that you've got a problem with if they refuse to listen this is step three take your case to the church If he won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Jesus is teaching us how to deal with conflict in the body of Christ. And if you read the entire passage, you see that he's more concerned with reconciliation than he is with who's right or wrong. 
many times we're concerned with who's right or wrong and not uh, reconciliation. But Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church. And then two chapters later, he says this word church again. And the gates of Hades are not gonna overpower it. Now, for us, we've translated that power of hell, but they would understand it in their day and age. Gates of Hades was a figurative way of saying death. So Jesus is saying, I'm gonna build my church and even death is not going to be able to overpower it. It's going to endure. That should excite us, that Jesus is building this church, this, what is he building exactly? Well, that word church is the Greek word ekklesia. Here, I'll write it up there for you. Ekklesia. Have you ever heard that? It's not a religious term. It doesn't mean church. Ecclesia is used in other places of the scripture and it's not about church. Ecclesia is a gathering of people for a specific purpose. Citizens gathering together for a civic rally is an ecclesia. Military men and women gathering together for a military pursuit is an ecclesia. The Greek New Testament or excuse me, Old Testament. The, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek for them to be able to read it. And the, the Israelites, the community of Israel, even when they were spread around the entire world, was called the ecclesia. A specific group of people, a gathering, if you will, of people for a specific purpose. So why is the word church in our Bibles? Do you ever wonder questions like this? Where does this word church come from? Well, if you've never wondered, you just go to sleep for a minute, but I'm gonna tell you where it came from. Because the word church is not a translation for the word ecclesia. It's a substitution for the word ecclesia. I'll tell you what I mean. The word church comes from words like the German word kirche, or the German, German word kirche, meaning house of the Lord or gathering place. And what happened throughout church history, from the time that Jesus said, I'm gonna establish an ecclesia, to the time of Constantine and to beyond him, they, they developed this idea of church. Church was no longer a group of people called out. This was a gathering place or an institution. That's what it became known as. And so the church comes into power. Constantine, when he comes into power, the emperor of Rome, he makes Christianity legal. Not only does he make it legal, he makes it the world religion, if you will. And he establishes the beginnings of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church and all of its abuses is not exactly the same as the Catholic Church of today. The Roman Catholic Church of the years gone by was really abusive to the point that men and women had to pay penance. You didn't repent of your sins, you had to pay the church to be forgiven of your sin. The priest was picked by God to be the only one that heard from God. The average person didn't get to hear from God. And the church, Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, why didn't the people just read their Bibles? Because they didn't have one. The Bible was only in languages that the priests could read, that the church leaders could read. The common person didn't have a Bible. So then men like Martin Luther and William Tyndale and uh, John Huss come on the scene around the uh, 1500 and they decide people should have a Bible. Does that sound good? 
And so they set out to begin translating the word of God. In 1526, William Tyndale prints the first English Bible that the English language speaking people could read in their own language. Ten years later, in 1536, the church leaders killed him because of his heresy. What did he do? He exposed the church for the fraud it was. See, William Tyndale's translation of the Bible, instead of saying do penance, he said repent. Instead of saying priest, he used the word elder. Instead of saying church, he said congregation. Heresy. Why? Because the, the church is losing power now. You say, well, Pastor Tom, what does all of this have to do? It shows us how easy we can drift away from what the word says. It shows us how we can take scripture and try to fit it into our culture and try to make it relevant to our culture and even become abusive in ways that Jesus, the Father, never intended to happen. It shows us that at times we react to abuses and sometimes go to an opposite extreme. And so when we look at this word church, my question is, are we understanding what Jesus meant? When he said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, are what we doing right now in the year 2015 in Hur at Huron First Assembly of God, are we doing what Jesus intended when he said, I'm going to build my ecclesia? Are we a church that's moving? Or are we a church that's meeting? Are we a church that is making a measurable difference in our community? Or are we a church that's holding services? Are we a church that's allocating our resources as if Jesus is the hope of the world? Or are we allocating our resources to fit our church budget the way that our culture or our historical pattern says we should do it? Are we an ecclesia or are we a church? I want to be an ecclesia. I want to be what Jesus had in mind when he said, I'm going to build my church. So here's the keys. One, Jesus Christ is the son of God. Jesus Christ is the son of God. We need absolute loyalty to him. Complete, total submission and obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let's not just assume we're doing that. Let's not just sing about Jesus being Lord. Let's live as if Jesus is Lord. And here's the thing. If Jesus Christ is Lord of all, imagine what that makes possible. How in the world could ever coming to this room to worship Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, be boring? How in the world could coming to this room to encounter together the living God ever not be worth it? Well, because we, we've stopped thinking of ecclesia and we're, it's church. It's church. It's just a church service. 
I mean, it doesn't matter if I miss, it's just a church service. I mean, there'll be another one next week. We've ceased to be ecclesia. It's, a, it's, it's now a building. It's now a service. It's now, I mean, does that mean you should never miss? No, but what I'm saying is we've got to transform the way we think. When we walk through those doors, we've got to come with the anticipation. We're meeting the living God here. I mean, when we pray, we ought to engage our hearts and our minds in prayer to the point that the living God is about to encounter us in a supernatural, life-transforming way. Something's got to change. Key number two, Jesus is the head and he has a body. Let that sink in for just a second. I just told you about how abusive the church can be. So the natural extreme for, to react to the abuse of the church is to go to the extreme where we serve a head without a body. Jesus, in his word, clearly tells us we grow up into Christ-likeness, where Christ is the head of his body. There's that word again, the ecclesia. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. If we don't love people we can see, how can we love God, whom we cannot see? And he's given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. If we reject his body, we don't love. Can I, can I, can I say this? Indifference is love, is, is, is hatred to me. If we're just indifferent to people, that's the antithesis of love. Love means I'm gonna be engaged with. Love means I'm going to, to serve. Love means I'm going to reach out to. Love means I'm going to pursue you even when you reject me. That's what love is. And so this idea in the American church that if I just come and sit in a pew on Sunday morning, hey, that's my church, is foreign. Or, you know, I have four or five friends that I really talk to at that church, and, and they're my friends, and that's the church for me because I, I can't get to know everybody. And so I'll just, you know, worry about the, the people that are like me or the people that, you know, uh, uh, my spirit bears witness with. The idea of the American church is maybe a little different than what God intended. Number three, God has a design, a purpose, and a plan for his ecclesia, and he wants us to know it. He wants us to know it. In the scripture, we're told in Ephesians chapter four, these are the gifts God gave to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we're mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. How many of you would think that all around the world that statement has come true? That we have reached unity in our faith, knowledge of God's son, and we're mature in the Lord and we are full and complete. Not quite. We're close. And so what does that tell us? That tells us that even though there's been abuses through church history and that pastors or teachers or apostles or prophets have stepped out of line, they haven't been eradicated. 
Because the word of God teaches us they have a place. And so the abuses of the past cannot cause us to change how we're going to live in the present. In Hebrews chapter 13, it even says this. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your soul. They're accountable to God. Give them reason to do it with joy and not sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. In the American church, I know we hate this verse. And the only reason we hate it is because of the abuse of the past. The first century church did not hate this verse. When this was penned and the church read this letter, they didn't go, oh, why would he write that? They received it with joy. How do we get back to that place? In Ephesians chapter four, not only does it talk about leaders in the body of Christ, it says he makes the whole body fit together perfectly and each part does its own, each part does its own special work. And I've checked the scripture. I have read it from cover to cover, different translations. I have yet to find the spiritual gift of attendance. I haven't found it. Whereas my gift is just to attend the body of Christ, the church, and that's it. Say, well, Pastor Tom, you're being kind of hard. But here's the thing. This isn't about me. This isn't about everyone around us. The problem is so many people that don't connect themselves to the body of Christ only have negative things to say about the body of Christ. They never seem to be getting fed. Maybe that's because in order to, to fill up and receive, you have to also give out. That's in the scripture. And so you're gonna stay in that stagnant pool of yuck until you're giving out. And here's the thing, until you're giving out with the right motive. Because a lot of people serve in church, but they're just, all that they care about is who's not serving. Well, I do this all by myself. Read the story of Mary and Martha one more time. <laughs> Jesus is not on our side when we're complaining about someone else that's not helping us. First Corinthians chapter 12. The human body is many parts, but the many parts make up one body, so it is with the body of Christ, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part where he wants it. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. Say, Pastor Tom, what's all this? Here's the thing. I want to see revival in Huron. I think this is how you get there. The church actually being the ecclesia, and can I tell you something? It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be messy, sometimes it'll be ugly. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said you're gonna have conflict. Some people say, well, when there's conflict in the church, that's the problem. No, you know what the problem is in the church? We don't deal with conflict. Or we don't deal with it in a godly way. The problem is not conflict. The problem is we talk to everybody else about the conflict except the person we have a conflict with. And we don't talk to the person we have a conflict with for the sake of reconciliation with that person. We talk to them for the sake of having my opinion heard, getting my way right. I know, I've been in the church for 39 years. This isn't my first rodeo. I've been there. I've done it. 
I've been spiritual and gone to the other person with the bull whip. I'm going to tell you how you hurt me. You won't find that in the body of Christ that's presented in the scripture. See, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom and you're going to open stuff on earth that's already opened in heaven and you're going to close stuff that's already closed in heaven. This is what you're going to do. But we can't do it unless we choose to be the ecclesia. Unless we choose to say we are a people connected together. A people connected together. And for every one of us in this room, you've got to make this personal. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? We have got to start to see the church differently. We are not called to be a part of the universal church. We are called to be a part of a local body of believers. The problem with being a part of the local or the universal church is nothing ever gets confronted in me. If I just get to pick my podcast for the week, I'm going to pick somebody that's going to tell me what I want to hear. And the minute they begin to tell me something I don't want to hear, I turn it off. And I go to a church and someone rubs me the wrong way and instead of dealing with it and dealing with what's in me, I'll just skip over to the next church because there's one on every corner. And then the, the body of Christ doesn't grow, it's weak, it's anemic, and there's no revival happening in our communities. People aren't getting saved in our communities, our churches are switching members from one to another. That's church growth in America. It ought not be that way. It doesn't have to be this way. We've been called to be the body of Christ. But to be the body of Christ, you and I have to hear what Jesus says to Peter. Remember this blessed Peter, who a couple chapters later, he, by the way, says, get behind me, Satan, because you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. Why did Jesus say that to Peter? Because Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter's like, you will not. I mean, we look at that statement and think, Peter, hello. Yeah, we need him to do that. But Peter is just being what all of us are being, self-preserving. Look what Jesus says to Peter in John chapter 21. I tell you the truth, Peter. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself. You went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and others are going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus says to him, follow me. Follow me. Here's what I want you to hear today. Don't follow me. Follow him. Don't look around you and say, well, what's that person doing? Or what's that person doing? Because look what he says. Jesus, what about, the, what about this one? You know what Jesus says? If I want him to remain alive until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. See, in the church, it's, in the American church, it's all about, you know, where I want to go, what I want to do, what, what, what ministry do I feel like I want to do this year? Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like doing... Lord, what do you want me to do? And it may be somewhere I don't want to go. That's maturity. God, I'll do what you ask me to do, even if it scares me, even if it's out of my comfort zone, even if it's the last thing I want to do. See, when people come to me and say, I've prayed and I just don't feel that that's what the Lord's asking me to do. Great, can't argue with that. But when people say, I just don't feel like it, 
oh, I didn't know that was the option because today I don't feel like being pastor, so we're going to just put in a video. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? When we go through this book and when we say, God, what, why have you, this is bigger than just a church. This is bigger than just a, a location. This is bigger than just a name. This is bigger than just a service. This is huge. This is the key to revival in this city. God, what do you want us to do? And some people say, well, I don't like the way the church is structured. What do we need to do? What do we need to change? I'm a, I will change anything except that. You want to meet on Tuesday nights? Let's meet on Tuesday night. You want to meet on Saturday night? Let's meet on Saturday night. You don't want to have Sunday school? You want to have Sunday school? I don't care. As long as we're telling people about Jesus, making disciples, and building the kingdom, I don't care how we do it. I don't care what program we use. I don't care if we use a wand. I don't care if we use rangers. I don't care what we do. I don't care. I just want to build the kingdom. And so if you've got a better way to build the kingdom, Come on, let's have coffee and let's figure this thing out. But don't just be content to sit in a pew and say, well, you know, I'll just attend this church. You're not called to attend this church. You're called to be the church. And so over the next couple of weeks, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Take this book seriously. Not as seriously as you take this book, but think about it. As you go through this book, the first base we put in here is membership. Bing, bing, bing. Our radar has gone off. Membership is a bad word. Here's what membership means. You're entering into a covenant relationship with other people. Can you do that without signing a piece of paper? Yep, do it. If you never sign a piece of paper, never sign a piece of paper. But at least enter into covenant partnership with the other people in this ecclesia. If you can't do that, go where you can. Go where you can because you will not find life where you do not enter into covenant relationship with the body of Christ where you attend. All you will find is what's wrong. That's what you'll do. You'll find everything that's wrong and you'll find a lot because there's a lot wrong. But there's a lot wrong everywhere. But it's funny, when you start entering into covenant relationship with other people and you start giving yourself to them, you'll find that you don't see the things that you used to see. So membership. Then the commitment to maturity. Maturity, growing up in Christ, being built up into his likeness. That's a commitment that we have to make. It's not just gonna happen automatically. Then a commitment to ministry. Why has God brought you here? If you're here this morning, God has led you here. Why? I know that can sound bad, but it's not supposed to be. Why? Why are you here? What, are, what is your purpose? What's your fit? What does God have planned? Because as you find that, and as you begin to do that, and it's not always gonna be the, the thing you wanna do. It might be the thing you don't wanna do. The thing that you one time said, I'll never do. Why in the American mindset do we think that I only serve in children's ministry when I have children? That's a self-serving. James says that the problem is we do things self-servingly. So whatever ministry has an impact on me, that's what I'm going to do. 
If that's what the Lord has spoken to you, great. But if that's just your personal preference or your opinion, or because you took an assessment, not so good. Prayerfully go through this book. And at the end of the book, you know what it says? If there's nothing in that book that fits who you are, schedule an appointment with a pastor and we'll have coffee and figure out who you are. Does that make sense? Here's the thing. Every year when we come to this Sunday and we print these books, I think of church history. That's why I shared church history with you today. Because I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be the, you have to obey your spiritual leaders church. I don't want to be the, if you're not in ministry in the church, you're a sinner church. I mean, I don't want to be the excessive, abusive kinds that used to exist. Nor do I want to run over here and just be a part of the universal church. I'm going to attend every church. I'm just going to go wherever. I'm just going to wake up in the morning and be spirit-led. No. That's not what the Bible teaches either. The Bible teaches entering into a covenant relationship with other human beings, ecclesia, and working out our salvation together. And here's the thing. There gets to be conflict along the way. Why aren't you smiling? We get to have conflict along the way because we don't like it. That's why you're not smiling. But you know what? That conflict that I have with you or you or you or you or you or you should teach me more about me than it does about you. And that's what God wants it to do. And as we learn and grow together, all of a sudden the world starts to take notice and says, something's going on over there because those people, I mean, they fight like cats and dogs, but they obviously love each other. Does that make sense? Some of you are looking at me like it doesn't make sense. Stand with me. Over the next couple weeks, we want you to prayerfully read through these scriptures, read through this booklet that we've put together for you. And I challenge you to make a part of your prayer time the ecclesia of God. God, change the way that I see church. It's not about just coming to a building and attending a service. It's not just about going through the motions of worship and prayer and services. We've got to be engaged in this. I mean, if we're going to come here and not be engaged with each other and engaged in worship, it would be best for us to stay home. We're just wasting each other's time. I mean, if we're gonna come and we're just gonna, you know, is it time to go yet? Let's just quit. Because we're wasting time. I mean, if this isn't what God intended, then let's just scrap it and do what he's intended. But if this is what he's intended, then let's get in this thing. Let's engage ourselves in prayer. Let's engage ourselves in worship. Let's engage ourselves in conversation with each other. Let's engage ourselves in ministry. Let's stop doing ministry like, you know, it's Saturday night, time to study my Sunday school lesson. 
Let's break that mentality. Let's do everything we do to the glory of God. And for some of you, you're doing too much. Hold on. And you can't give your best to anything because you're doing everything. Stop it. What does the Lord want you to do? Don't just, well, but there was a need. I don't care. If the Lord hasn't asked you to do it and you don't feel led to do it, quit. My staff used to hate me when I said that. Mr. Tom, you can't tell everyone to quit because no one's in our ministries. I'd rather have someone committed to that ministry than a warm body. Are you here? And so here's the thing. I really don't care what you do, but find what you've been created to do because you will not flourish without it. You're not here by accident. What's his purpose and plan? And so Father, we need you to teach us. God, we have hundreds and thousands of years of cultural pattern that has done this wrong. God, we've gotten such a routine of of this idea of church. God, we want you to take us back to the beginning. What did you intend when you said you're gonna build your ecclesia? You're gonna build a body of believers. You're gonna build a, a group of people gathered together for a specific purpose. What's your plan? What's your purpose for this body? God, I pray for each individual in this room. God, I pray that you would, over these next few weeks, make your purposes and your will known to us. And God, help us to be steadfast and faithful when we know you've spoken to us. Even if, like Peter, you've called us to go somewhere, we don't want to go. If you're leading us a place, we'd rather not be led. May we be steadfast and faithful to do what you've asked us and called us to do, trusting you, following you. (laughs) And so, Father, teach us what the church should look like. Make us, at Huron First Assembly, a model for other churches to follow. God, we want to see revival in this city. We want to see your kingdom come. Show us what you want each of us to do to be a part of that. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. Don't get wet as you leave. Unspeakable.